1 Samuel chapter number 17. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, I think, to most of us that are students of the Word of God. I know I say that a lot, but, I, you know, I love some of these passages of Scripture, and uh, we ought to be students of the Word of God. Uh, we ought to be spending our time in the Bible. We ought to be familiarizing ourselves with the truth of Scripture. And uh, this passage of Scripture is not one that I think very many people make it through Sunday school without learning and learning about. And so I trust it's very familiar to you. It is the story of David and Goliath in the Valley of Elah and of God's great deliverance. But there's a phrase that David makes, and you've probably heard it preached on before, but it's on my heart this evening. I want us to notice it. First Samuel chapter 17, and we'll begin reading in verse number 19. First Samuel chapter 17. Verse number 19, the Bible says, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse, that's his father, had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spake according to the same words. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up, and it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, David's eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? Let's stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the Word of God. Speak to our hearts tonight in such a way as we glorify you. And may our obedience bring you pleasure and content you, Lord, and and be glorifying unto you. And we'll be sure to thank you. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'll be honest this evening. I just want to encourage you a little bit from the Word of God and from this passage in saying the cause is worth it. The cause is worth it. David, when he comes down and views the battle set in array, he asks this burning question, is there not a cause? Now, what does he mean when he says that? Well, he is answering directly the charges of his brother Eliab, his older brother. Us younger brothers got a hard time, amen? I mean, we got these older brothers to deal with. They're trouble sometimes, amen? And uh, his older brother begins to sort of of mock him and begins to uh, cast aspersions upon him and, and criticize him. And David's reply to that is, hey, is there not a cause? Is there not a reason to be here? Is there not a reason to be doing what we're doing? What does David mean when he says, is there not a cause? Well, I think number one, he's saying, is there not a cause to fight? 
All the men were trembling back behind the lines, fearful and, and, and terrified that they'd lose their lives if they stuck their head up above the trench and, and went and tried to, to fight this Philistine uh, giant. And David says, hey, uh, fellas, we may lose our lives, but at least we won't lose our legacy. It's worthy to go and to fight this battle. Now, here's what I mean when I say fight. I don't mean physically fight. I don't mean take up physical sword and shield. But there is a spiritual warfare. And I would say to you tonight, hey, it's a fight that is worthy to fight. It is a worthy cause to be willing to not go the direction the world does, to not let the world have our families, to not let the world have our marriages, to not let the world have our testimonies, but to instead withstand and stand in the evil day and determine that this fight is a worthy fight. I think he is saying that there is a cause to fight for. Then I think, number two, he's saying there is a cause for fury. In other words, he's saying, I'm upset by this uh, uncircumcised Philistine blaspheming the God of Israel. Why ain't you upset over this happening? And I will tell you that and I'm guilty of it, I'm sure, and, and I'm sure you are as well. But man, there's a lot of things that ought to upset us that just don't upset us anymore. There's some things that we ought to be outraged by. I mean, there's some things that ought to disturb us. And, you know, little by little, inch by inch, we have seen such degeneracy and debauchery creep its way even into our communities such that we are shocked sometimes at some of the things going on in the school system, going on in government, man, uh, going on in, all over our city. I mean, I don't know if you realize it. I, I thank the Lord for East Tennessee. It's my home, and and I enjoy it. Amen. I, I know 75 and I, I-40 will take me right away from here, and I could go if I wanted. It's where I want to be. But do you realize that Knoxville has become an increasingly wicked city? It's a wicked place. You say, well, preacher, why is that? Well, because it's full of a lot of wicked people. And there are things that should just, man, it should, it should bother us that they paint our bridge up with propaganda and with debauchery and degeneracy. It should bother us that they take the symbol of God's promise to Noah and paint it on the bridge as a way to thumb their nose at God and to defy God. That ought to bother us. It should bother, it should bother us that they won't have parades up and down the street to, to celebrate wickedness and ungodliness. Hey, it should bother us that there's a liquor store every two seconds. I, I, we were going up to the, uh, to the, the corn maze, uh, yesterday and, and we were up in the Pigeon Forge area and, and, you know, Severe Valeria and, and in fact I was up there earlier this week, me and my son, we went and did a little fishing up there in Pigeon Forge. You drive through there, I don't know if you remember this, if you just moved here in the last five years, you don't. But 15 years ago, it wasn't nothing but distilleries everywhere you looked. And now you go up, I mean, it used to be you went up to that part of uh, of the country and, and, I mean, it was all just fake Indian artifacts and bluegrass gospel music and barbecue. Amen. That's how we liked it. And uh, now you go up there, man, and everything's wine and whiskey and moonshine and, and liquor. Hey, I'm against that. I'm against that because it destroys families and homes and lives. And God's against that too. Uh, that should outrage us. Man, that should bother us. I think David's saying, hey, I have a right to be upset. And we live in a society where being upset has become an Olympic sport and somehow Christians have lost their propensity to be bothered by sin. We just we think we ought to just go along to get along with society and sin. But there are some things that should bother us. I think he's saying there's a cause to fight. And I think he's saying there's a cause to fury. But I think he's also saying there's a cause for faith. Part of what Eliab says is rooted in a, a, 
a deep disbelief in God's ability to give them victory that day. He looks at his little brother that is stirring up these men that are standing. Hey, Eliab should have been doing that, but he wasn't. And so David is stirring up the hearts of those soldiers. He's not even a soldier. He's a shepherd, but he's showing himself more soldier than shepherd in that passage and more soldier than the other soldiers that are there. And he is stirring up their heart. And Eliab is saying, what are you doing? You don't know what you're talking about. You're going to get all these men killed by what you're saying. You're going to get all these men all spun up and excited. They're going to charge out there and be slaughtered. And there's going to be families without fathers and wives without husbands. You're foolish, David. You don't belong here. And David says, can't you just trust God to do something with this? And I will tell you this. Hey, there is a cause to have faith in the Lord and to trust God to do big things in our lives, in our homes, with our children, in our marriages. There is a cause for faith. So I see the cause that David's speaking about. Now, let me say a word about the accusations of Eliab. Because Eliab is a man, and you could probably varyingly say he in some ways represents the flesh. Because some of the things he says, my flesh says to me when I'm trying to take a stand for the Lord. But I think he is also a picture of sort of the world's philosophy towards Christians that are selling out and living for God and consecrating their lives to him. And notice his criticisms that he gives. The first is this. He claims that what David is doing is inappropriate. He says this, why camest thou down hither? Now, I don't know if you realize, but the implicit truth or, or the implicit thought behind that is, David, you don't belong here. You're underfoot, David. You're in the way, David. You're out of place, David. Everything would go much smoother, David, if you just go back where you belong and quit being down here stirring up trouble. You know, it's funny, man. I mean, it, it, it's every every various... I mean, the the... Every single group that society can be busted into has every right in the world to get in the middle of the road and, and, and shut down traffic, to shut down government, to shut down all of polite society. But let a child of God want a, a little bit of, of room and representation. Let a Bible-believing Christian suggest that they should not be utterly exterminated and eradicated from the sphere of public thought and people will absolutely scream and clutch their pearls at the notion that a Christian would want to actually exist. But can I tell you this? Hey, the world has always, always treated it as an absurd notion that Christians should be allowed to exist. I mean, you understand that the Roman Empire, which was representative of the world system, within a hundred years, within, hey, within, within about thirty years of Christians beginning to go out into the world and tell of this man by the name of Jesus Christ, the world was crucifying them, covering them in pitch and tar, and lighting their dinner parties with their burning corpses. I don't know if you realize it, man, but the world just has a problem with Christians existing. With Christians being. And here's one of the, the propaganda tactics they'll use against you and your family and your children. They'll make it seem like everything would be fine if you weren't here and in the way. If we could just do something about those Christians, then we'd be able to fix everything in society. We're seeing whole of government mobilized to this worldview. And make no mistake, hey, listen, I don't necessarily believe that Donald Trump is Christian. I don't necessarily believe that, that that voting for Donald Trump has any correlation with Christianity. But make no mistake that a blind federal government absolutely believes that there is a connection betwixt the two. And it is not Donald Trump who's likely a creature of their own making that they are so scandalized by. 
It is not, hey, they always had, mm, well, let's just go ahead then. They always had him under control. You understand that, right? They've killed presidents before. They'd kill another one if, if that's what it took. But whole of government has been mobilized against, they can call it MAGA, uh, they can call it extremists, they can call it far right. But really what they mean when they say that is people that believe the Bible is the word of God. That's really what they mean when they say that, that people, and listen, more so even, I mean, that extends even further than even Donald Trump's personal beliefs. It is a way of targeting, it is a way of of scrutinizing people that might believe we ought to have some freedom in this world. I'm saying this, the world has always treated as though Christians simply have no right to exist. I'm here to tell you, hey, listen, Christians not only have a right to exist, we have a responsibility to exist. I would say this, uh, Eliab, he says, man, David, it's, it's inappropriate for you to be here. There's a second criticism he gives. He says, with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? Now, this is an ironic thing for him to say. If it's just a few sheep in the wilderness, what's the big deal in leaving them behind? He was meaning to suggest that David was shirking his duty by being there. He was claiming that David had not come to the battle because he wanted to see the battle or fight or make a difference in that day, but rather he had come there to get away from his responsibilities that had been given to him. I would say this, the world, some claim that it's inappropriate, but others claim that Bible Christianity is a form of escapism. That all we're trying to do is check out of rational thought and of coping with the world around us. Uh, We're treated as though as, as Christians that we are, we are deluded that, that it's simply we are too weak and too uh, mentally feeble to face the realities of the world around us. By the way, it's not me that has a problem with how God created me. I'm not the one struggling to cope. I'm not the one struggling to figure out. I'm not the one struggling to to grapple with reality. And the world would suggest to us that that when we get on fire for God and stand for Him, well, we're just doing that because we're too weak and feeble to handle the world around us. I'll tell you this, I don't do that because I'm too weak and feeble to handle the world. I do that because I'm too weak and feeble to handle myself. And I need a Savior. And I need a Lord. And they do too. They just don't see it and they just don't recognize it. So he claims, David, it's an escape. You've left your responsibilities and come down here to the front lines. But then he says this, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. Now here's what he's saying. He's saying you didn't come to fight, you come to look. You didn't come to stand, you came to see. And you're here out of a childish infatuation with what's transpiring here And I would say this, the world, they accuse Bible Christianity of being inappropriate, of being a form of escapism, but they also, they sneer at it and they treat it as though it is a childish thing. And you'll have people in your life, when you get serious about God, that they'll, they will treat you with a sneer and a snicker and cynicism and treat you as though somehow you are, are some starry-eyed, cult-member, deluded individual because you just happen to believe a person ought not pour poison in their body. Because you just happen to believe that that uh, we're happier for for uh, respecting the the consecrated order uh, that God has given and not stepping outside of uh, of our marriage and our commitments that that you're somehow some kind of uh, of, of wide eyed fanatic because you just happen to believe it would be better that children be raised on the Bible than on Disney. 
that you're some kind of lunatic because you believe it would be better that they be raised with a biblical worldview as opposed to the state program mandated acceptable uh, ideals. And they'll treat you like you're a childish individual. Like, well, you know, that's just so silly. That's just so childish. And David could have easily said, well, Eliab, you're right. I don't belong down here. But he understood that he was there willing to do something that no one else there that was paid to do it and that was called to do it, that was trained to do it, was willing to do. And so he says, okay, I'll stand, I will fight. Eliab may have not seen a cause to stand, but David did. And so the question must be asked, why did David see this fight as a worthwhile cause? I want you to notice four things, and then I'll be done this evening. Look with me in verse 19. The Bible says, now Saul... And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. I would say, number one tonight, the reason he felt like this was a worthwhile cause is because of the battle or the spiritual battle that was taking place. Now, somebody will say, well, preacher, it was not a spiritual battle. It was a physical battle. And that's very true, although I would say this. This battle, uh, amongst many in Scripture, certainly stands as a representation of future events as well as theological realities. But more than that, any time you see a, a battle in your Bible, you ought to stop and ask yourself if you can learn something about the spiritual warfare that we are daily engaged in. Paul would tell us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, uh, against spiritual wickedness in, in high places. In other words, you and I, we are standing in the midst of a spiritual warfare. And I will tell you this, that there's a difference between being in sleep mode and being in battle mode. There's a difference. Hey, there's going to come a day we'll get to lay down our sword and rest in that city. But until that day comes, we better recognize and be on our toes and see that there is an enemy prowling about that will destroy our lives and our families if he's given the opportunity to do so. You see, in this passage, David realizes that there's a battle going on, and what makes him look so stark and strange is not that he is acting out of place, it's that he's the only one that is acting in place. He's the only one that's acting like there is a battle. I read, I don't remember if it was a show I watched or something I read, but I, I, it was something, might have even been a podcast I was listening to, it was talking about warfare uh, in, in medieval times. And we have sort of these, you know, brave heart ideas of what battle looked like in medieval times. And, and we kind of think of these large standing armies. And, and we kind of think of, uh, of, you know, these great clashes and conflicts and, and uh, the, the din and noise of battle and, and, you know, the blood and the gore and all of the various things that would come with that manner of warfare. But do you know that most warfare in medieval times was largely small groups of men wandering in the wilderness hoping to find somebody to kill? They didn't have GPS, funny thing about it. And most of the time, they wouldn't march on a road unless they knew they were the biggest army around. And so generally speaking, when these wars, when these armies would march out, they'd head out in the spring, and most of their time was spent wandering around trying to find the other army. They say that oftentimes when they would find the other army, because these men uh, were often feudal servants that were not fighting for their own land, but fighting for their Lord's land, it was kind of hard to motivate them to fight a lot of times. 
Uh, and so they say that a lot of times hours would be spent at a battle with men just sort of standing across from each other, sort of inching towards each other and then moving back, screaming curses at one another and trying to work up the nerve to go run at somebody holding a sharp pointy object that they might put into you. So they would spend their time trying to work themselves up into a fury to go and to imperil and to risk their lives. So most of the men would just be milling about doing nothing when a battle is scheduled to happen. Imagine how ludicrous that is. And when we see Israel and the Philistines in this passage, it's sort of similar to the same kind of situation. I mean, day after day after day, these men sit in their camp, those men sit in their camp, and then this big old Goliath fella goes out and walks back and forth and taunts and defies and blasphemes the God of Israel. And the men sit around saying, well, I wonder if today's going to be the day. I wonder if tomorrow's going to be the day. Meanwhile, Saul is sitting back in his tent uh, with the coals burning and a warm uh, cloak around him and, and fine food being brought to him. You see, David was not the ridiculous one. It was everyone else living the delusion. He was the only one willing to see the situation for what it truly was. He showed up expecting a battle. And he got there and he found something like a boring party. And he's confused by what he's seen. And he's saying, we're here to fight. We're here to win. We're here to defy them as they have defied God. Why aren't we standing in the day of battle? And I will tell you this, that oftentimes people get on fire for God. And they thought that living for Christ would be like a battlefield. And instead they found it to be a boring party with a bunch of mediocre Christians uninterested in actually believing their Bible. They get there and go, I thought we were fighting hell with, I thought we were fighting the devil and I thought we, I thought it mattered how I raised my kids. I thought it mattered how I stood. I thought it mattered what I believed. And so often they walk into so many churches. I hope this isn't true of ours. God help me. It might be true of ours, but certainly it's true of a great many around this city. They walk into and, and they find a boring social club filled with boring people and they're confused at what they've seen. David says, no, listen, there's a spiritual warfare. There's a battle. You say, why are you so worked up, David? Because it's a war. Why are you such a fanatic, David? Because it's life or death. And you say, preacher, why are you so fanatic? Why should we be fanatic? Why should we be so excited? Because it's life or death. For our children, for our marriages, for generation after generation, for our country, it's life or death. So it should matter to us. I think he felt there was a cause because of the spiritual battle. But then look down at verse 22. The Bible says this, David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage. Pause, practical application of Scripture. If you have a carriage, the best place to leave it is with the keeper of the carriage. (laughs) You all said that like that was real deep. I was just being cute. And ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion. Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines. The Bible says he spake according to the same words, and David heard them. What does it mean when it says the same words? Well, in verse number 8, we didn't read it, but of this chapter, it says that Goliath would stand, and he'd cry unto the armies of Israel, and this is what he'd say to him: Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? 
choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall you be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And we learn later on and we can use a little bit of sanctified imagination some of the things that no doubt, I don't think that's a catalog of everything that Goliath said during that day. And and we learn later on with some of the things that he says when he talks to David and he, he blasphemes David's God and he mocks David's God and he mocks David. And David had sat there, and I don't know how long he was there, but long enough that he was bothered by what he had heard. And he said, don't you realize the enemy is making a mockery of our God? Don't you realize that the enemy is boasting himself over our God? Somebody ought to stand up for God and speak for God, and somebody ought to be willing to stop him in his blasphemy. Why did he see a worthwhile cause? Well, I think because of the spiritual battle, but number two, because of the satanic blasphemies. Because the devil had a a mouthpiece, but nobody was speaking for God in the camp of Israel. They just meekly sat there and God was all, all we hear about in society is representation, representation, everything you watch. Well, I'm so sick of watching TV because everything, all it's about is representation. We've got to, we, we've got to have some, you know, a Polynesian, left-handed, one-eyed lesbian, uh, with buck teeth and a cleft lip or else that community feels underrepresented, you know, everything. That's all we hear anymore. You ever wonder if God feels underrepresented? You wonder if God sits there in glory and thinks, why won't anyone speak for me? And one day he'll speak for himself. Praise the Lord. But David says, hey, somebody ought, somebody ought to be on God's side. Somebody ought to stand up and say something for the Lord. Somebody ought to be willing to withstand. Because if we don't, the enemy stands unchecked and he sways the hearts of our men and he sways the hearts of his men. And somebody ought to be willing to stand and say, hey, there is an opposition to the Philistines. I don't know if you realize this. And I've often said this about young people. You'll hear people say, well, if you raise your children in church and and all that, then you're going to brainwash them. Man, I wish I could. Amen. Uh, you're going to brainwash them and, and you're not giving them a choice. That's what they'll say. I want my kids to choose to serve the Lord. If you raise them in church, you're not giving them a choice. No, man, the world's going to give them uh, choices. But if you don't raise them in church, the world won't give them a choice. I mean, you understand that, that, that the propaganda of the world is so uniform, so cohesive, so on point to their purposes, that unless they have a mama and daddy that live for God, They'll grow up never thinking that there's anything except brokenness and wretchedness and wickedness. And that's all they'll think there is. Hey, a man blind from birth ain't never known nothing but darkness. He don't know what he's missing until Christ opened his eyes in John chapter number 9. He said, I didn't know there's a whole world out here because nobody had ever been able to show him. And you know, when we raise young people and we don't show them the things of Christ, we're not limiting their, or we are not expanding their horizon. We're limiting their decisions. We don't teach them that they can live for God and that their life can be different. And here in this passage, David says, hey, the enemy ought not be able to just stand up there and crow and boast and nobody stand up for God. Somebody ought to be willing to stand up and to defy him as he's defied God and to say there is a God in heaven, He is powerful, He does give the victory, and He is worth worshiping. 
David, he saw a worthwhile cause because of the satanic blasphemies. But then look at verse 24. The Bible says, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. Now, I don't think this was the primary reason, but surely it had to affect David. When he looked around and he saw men twice, three times his size, with twice as much experience and training, trembling, fleeing, and running from the giant Goliath. And you know, he probably thought as he looked around for a king that wasn't there, as he looked around for generals that weren't there, and he probably thought to himself, these men need a leader. The Bible describes how that this would be the day that the name David would become famous in the land of Israel. They would begin to sing songs about him, and it wouldn't be long they'd be singing and saying, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Why is that? Why did David rise to such prominence? One of the things that we see in David's life, when he stayed with his soldiers, he stayed out of trouble. When he left his army, that's when things got messy for David. He was a leader. He was a man who inspired men to follow him. And here's one of the reasons I think he saw a cause that day is because of the soldiers that were beholding. He said, these men need to see that it can be done. You know, we think of leadership, and we have had a very, very warped perspective on leadership. We think leadership is the same thing as teaching, and it's not. You can teach without leading. And while undoubtedly every leader will probably engage in teaching to some degree, leadership is not synonymous with teaching. There is a certain quality to leadership that is superlative to teaching by itself. In other words, it's one thing to say, do this. It's another thing to say, let me show you how to do this. And David recognizes that Saul has been commanding his soldiers, go out and fight the Philistine. Go out and fight the giant. But that wasn't what won the day. They needed to see somebody show them. Let me say, and, and, and I, I'm just going to say it. If it sounds funny, whatever, love me anyway. I want to be the type of person that people look at my life and they say, Oh, it can be done. I want people to look at And we're not perfect, and I'm not perfect, and my, my, my family is not, my kids are not, my spouse, my marriage, my testimony, my preaching, my ministry. None of that is perfect. I'm not claiming it is in any respect. But I do want to have the kind of life that people look at and say, Oh, it can be done. It can be done. I want people to be able to look at my life and, and say, That shows me what it means to live for Christ. Again, not claiming to have already arrived, neither were already perfect, but I follow after. And I want my life to be such, and you should want your life to be such. You should want your life to be such that your kids look at you and say, it's possible to have a godly marriage. It's possible to have a godly home. It's possible to be faithful to church. It's possible to never lose your fire and your zeal. It's possible to be honest and consecrated and have integrity and live for the Lord. It's possible because there's people watching you. David says there's people watching you and you don't need to ever forget it. But then I, I notice verse 25, verse 27. This might, this might lower your esteem of David, but it don't mind. The Bible says in verse 25, the men of Israel said, have you seen this man that has come up? That's a dumb question. <laughs> yeah. Surely to defy Israel has he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Evidently, that interested David. Because David says, uh, repeat that. David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, 
What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth. Why did David see a cause to fight, to fury, to have faith on this day? Well, I think it was because of the spiritual battle. There is a warfare. There is a warfare. We're engaged in it whether we realize it or not. I think because of the satanic blasphemies, he said God should have someone to stand for him and the devil should have someone that stands against him. I think because of the soldiers beholding, there were people watching him and he was conscious of that reality. But then I think this, and I'm done, because of the supreme blessings that God would bestow to those willing to fight. <laughs> he said, what do we get if we kill that big fella standing out there? Somebody said, well, Saul give you his daughter. Evidently, she's pretty because nobody said, nah. <laughs> and we'll make you rich and we'll make your father's house free in Israel. David stopped and he thought and he said, yeah, that's worth it. I'll go do that. He looked at it and he said this, the king rewards those that stand in the day of battle. You know, the Hebrews writer would say this, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. Can I tell you that God rewards faithfulness? And it may seem real carnal, and it may seem real superficial and temporal. It, it, it may seem real small-minded, and that's fine. I'll take your blessings if you don't want them. But can I say that it ought to matter that God blesses and honors His people that are faithful to Him? And I'll tell you, one of the reasons that it's worthwhile serving God, raising your family for God, living for the Lord, staying in church, being faithful... Because it's better. It's better than being a Philistine. It's better than standing on the other side. And it's better than cowering in the trenches. It's a richer life. It's a more fun life. You don't think it is. You just live it. It's a joyful life. Hey, it's an exciting life living for God. And no man has ever stepped out in faith to follow God that's been the loser for it. David says, I believe God will bless me. If I'm willing to stand, and I believe God will bless you if you're willing to stand as well. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, I just want to give you an opportunity tonight. If God touched your heart about something, to meet him in the altar, to talk to him about that. He wouldn't have said that for no reason. And so if God stirred your heart about something, would you meet him down here? Let him have his will and way. Father, bless this invitation. It magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.